Mitsukoshiyama was alone when a federal marshal came to arrest him. He'd gotten a draft notice from the Selective Service, but he refused to report for his physical. And I said, how, how can I go? I don't think it's uh, right. Mitz was 19 years old. He was living in a barrack behind barbed wire at Heart Mountain Incarceration Camp in Wyoming. Mitz and his family were forced to share two small rooms. I said, Tria, how can I go and fight for democracy when I'm in a concentration camp? My family and friends are in the concentration camp, denied every constitutional rights. Mitz's mother was working in the mess hall the day he was taken to jail. His younger sisters were in the camp school. He hadn't told anyone but his older brother that he was going to resist the draft. Mitz never had a chance to say goodbye. I was by myself, but I just told myself, this is something I have to do. If the government does you wrong, you should protest. Mitz had been raised not to bring shame or haji to his family. My mother put that into my head, but I said, this is too important of an issue to worry about haji and shikata ganai and those Japanese words, you know. Shikata ganai means nothing can be done or can't be helped. But Mitz disagreed. In his own way, he was going to fight for justice. Mitz's older brother agreed with him in principle. But he said, this is a really racist state. The judges, everybody will be against you. In the state of Wyoming, you don't have a chance. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a podcast about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Saab Shimono. In this chapter, the many ways Japanese Americans protested their imprisonment and resisted the pressure to prove their patriotism. When 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were forced into incarceration camps during World War II, only four people fought back by challenging the order in court. Four. At first, everybody else basically did what the government told them to do, but not for long. There was all sorts of resistance in the camps. This is historian Greg Robinson. There were riots in Santa Anita when the government tried to ban hot plates that mothers had to give you know, milk to their kids. And there was resistance by inmates when the government tried to ban a meeting where people were speaking Japanese. Japanese Americans provided most of the labor in the 10 incarceration camps. They reported to white supervisors and got paid little. Eric Moller is a legal scholar and historian. He says incarcerees protested poor treatment, delayed pay, long hours, and many other problems in camp. Some of it was very explosive and in your face, like, you know, masses of people rioting and complaining and chanting. And some of it was much more mundane, like work slowdowns, work stoppages, labor strikes. One time at Heart Mountain, 32 children were arrested for sledding outside the boundaries of camp. There was no fence around the perimeter. When camp authorities tried to recruit incarcerees to erect one, nearly all of the eligible men went on strike. Several thousand inmates then signed a petition stating that, quote, 
the fence proved that Hart Mountain was indeed a concentration camp and that they were prisoners of war. Camp authorities still put up a fence made of barbed wire. Not everyone in camp supported these protests. In fact, historian Ellis Yang says there were sharp, sometimes violent, conflicts between different segments of the Japanese-American population. Do you respond to oppression by cooperating and by proving your patriotism, or do you respond by protesting? The Japanese-American Citizens League, or JACL, believed in cooperating. The JACL was founded in 1929 by members of the Nisei generation. The JACL became the main intermediary between the U.S. government and Japanese Americans during World War II. But Greg Robinson says many incarcerees disliked the JACL. Indeed, the Japanese American Citizens League, which had supported mass removal as a temporary war strategy and to show their patriotism, was hunted within the camps. Uh, Japanese American Citizens League activists were actually beaten up and threatened. Opponents of the JACL suspected there were informants for camp authorities and the government. There was a special label for informants, Inu, Japanese for dog. In the fall of 1942, actions by the JACL helped spark a riot at Manzanar in California. After Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans were banned from military service. Eric Muller. At a conference in Salt Lake City, the JACL leaders gathered and announced that they wanted Japanese Americans to be able to resume serving in the army uh, and, in fact, to go off and spill their blood on battlefields to prove how genuinely true American uh, all of the Japanese Americans were. Many Japanese Americans supported that idea, as we heard in the last chapter, but others were appalled when a JACL representative, Fred Tayama, returned to Manzanar from the conference, he was savagely beaten by masked men, all fellow prisoners in camp. Manzanar authorities arrested a man they suspected of taking part in the beating. A riot ensued. Military police were called in. They shot dead two Japanese Americans in the crowd. The man arrested was an organizer named Harry Ueno. Harry Ueno was a kitchen worker who organized a kitchen workers association to protest what he thought of as theft and uh, corruption among the administration and to protest uh, some of the working conditions. Harry was 35 years old and had three children. He also had an alibi for the night Fred Tayama was beaten. But Harry had become a problem for camp administrators. The night of the beating, Harry was handcuffed and driven out of camp by the chief of police and a camp administrator, Ned Campbell. Harry had once accused Campbell of stealing sugar and meat to sell on the black market. Now he was riding in the back seat of Campbell's car. Harry asked that his captors tell his family where they were taking him. Campbell turned around and said, uh, nobody going to know where we're going to take you, and uh, you will never come back to the camp anymore. This is Harry Ueno. 
So I, I told him, maybe you're going to take me in some jail or someplace, but uh, someday you're going to get punished the way you treat the Japanese people in a camp. You're going to be a bigger jail than I am, I told him. <laughs> and he was a, a raging man. <laughs> As it turned out, Harry was returned to Mansonar briefly. But over the next year, he got sent to seven different prisons in three different states. These included the Moab Isolation Center in Utah and the Loop Isolation Center in Arizona. These were basically gulags. Eric Muller says the War Relocation Authority, or WRA, had created these separate camps to isolate Japanese Americans they considered troublemakers. These were lawless places in which people were confined much more rigorously and under much closer surveillance and under worse living conditions than any of the other official 10 camps and were really kind of kept there against their will without any plausible legal justification. Over the year that Harry Ueno was moved from one prison to the next, he was never charged with a crime. The WRA was responsible for running the 10 incarceration camps. By the end of 1942, it had come up with a surprising new policy for managing them. Officials wanted to find ways to move the incarcerees out as quickly as possible, just not back to the West Coast. They did not want these camps to turn into permanent settlements. They wanted these to be temporary way stations along the way towards... Uh, lives dispersed across the country in the interior. At the same time, the War Department decided to create a Japanese-American combat unit. So it joined forces with the WRA to start clearing inmates for release from camp. These government organizations knew they had to be able to attest to the loyalty of every person of Japanese ancestry they let out. After all, they had forcibly removed all of them from the West Coast because, they said, you couldn't tell who might be a traitor. So now, lo and behold, it turns out they do feel that they can figure out who is loyal and who is disloyal. And the way they decide to do that is with this absolutely blundering questionnaire. We didn't know the purpose really behind the questionnaire. Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga was a young newlywed imprisoned at Manzanar when the so-called loyalty questionnaire came out. Was it going to be used to segregate us? Was it going to be used as instrument to repatriate or expatriate members of the family? The questionnaire was a four-page form. All adults in camp had to fill it out. Most of the questions seemed straightforward. People were asked about their hobbies, what magazines they read, their religious background. But tacked on were two questions that wound up splintering the community and shattering families. Question 27. Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered? Question 28. Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces, and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any other foreign government, power, or organization. These two questions 
brought to the surface a year's worth of insecurity and anger and confusion and rage because they seemed like traps. Frank Emmy was incarcerated at Heart Mountain when he received the questionnaire. He had a wife and a young daughter. When he came to question 27, asking if he would serve in the armed forces, he was astonished. I thought it was a very uh, stupid and uh, arrogant question to ask us after we were thrown out of our homes and put into these concentration camps without even uh, a word about our citizenship rights or civil rights or constitutional rights being restored. And question 28 just made no sense to him. As a citizen of the U.S., Frank had never had an allegiance to Japan. How could he forswear it now? The question was even trickier for his parents' generation, the Issei. Federal law at the time barred immigrants like them from becoming U.S. citizens. For our parents to forswear allegiance to Japan, that would have left them without a country. They'd have become stateless persons. The loyalty questionnaire created so many divisions. Barbara Takei is an expert on the segregation of Japanese Americans at Tula Lake Prison Camp during World War II. Tula Lake is in the northeast tip of California. With people fighting, you know, within families to decide how they should answer, whether they needed to give the answers they knew the government wanted to hear or whether they should stand up on principle and use the loyalty questionnaire as a form of protest. Everyone said, well, you got to answer yes, yes. Yukio Kawaratani was 12 years old when his family began intense discussions about how to answer the loyalty questionnaire. They were incarcerated at Poston in Arizona. When Yukio says, Yes, yes. He means answering yes to both the loyalty questions. His parents had serious doubts about this option. My father, of course, was so upset about what had happened to us. You know, he had lost the farm and everything, and here and now his whole family was in camp, so he was pretty bitter. Yukio was one of ten siblings. Three of his brothers were already serving in the U.S. Army. Two others living in camp were of draft age. Yukio's parents worried that by answering yes, yes, the family would be split up even more. It was actually my mother who said, look, I got three sons in the U.S. Army who, you know, who are in harm's way, and then I may have two more, so let's declare no-no, and maybe then they'll be spared, and also we'll keep the family together. In the long run, Yukio's family would be torn apart by their experience in camp. But in the short run, they had become so-called no-nos, or disloyals. No-nos were incarcerees who answered no to questions 27 and 28, or refused to answer the questions. Or they answered it in an equivocal way. Eric Moller. Saying, yes, I'll be loyal, but then they would scribble into the margin, you know, if you give us our rights back. There were about 78,000 adults in the camps who were required to fill out the loyalty questionnaire. About 12,000 of them became no-nos. That's roughly one-sixth of the population. Some people said, oh, you know, you're the disloyal troublemakers, and you, you make the Japanese look bad. But most friends and relatives were more concerned, what's going to happen to you? That was a good question. None of this is what the War Relocation Authority expected. 
It thought incarcerees would jump at the chance to declare their loyalty to America and get out of camp. It ended up having almost the opposite effect. And now the government had an even bigger problem on their hands because now the whole country was watching and all of a sudden uh, the WRA had to admit that they had literally thousands of people in the camps who had indicated that they were not loyal to the United States. And that posed a very big problem. WRA officials came up with a plan. They would take the disloyals and segregate them in one camp, Tula Lake in California. There were um, 18,000 people segregated to Tule Lake. Barbara Takei has written extensively about Tule Lake. At one time, her mother was imprisoned there. Even before segregation, Tule Lake was a camp where there was a lot of protest. You know, there were strikes, and people were very vocal about expressing their feelings of injustice. So um, once segregation happened, it became the place where all of the organizers and the most outspoken and the most disaffected and the angry were the ones who were segregated to Tule Lake. And so, of course, it made Tule Lake kind of a, a cauldron of dissatisfaction and protest. Tule Lake authorities could be rough on protesters, even before the segregation started. Jim Tanimoto was living in block number 42 when the loyalty questionnaire came out. More than 30 people on his block refused to sign it, including Jim. My reason for not signing was I was a prisoner. Jim was 19 years old. He says it was hard for him and his neighbors to even take the questionnaire seriously. We sort of laughed it off and said, you know, here we are, American citizens. And uh, they uprooted us. So they did things that they're not supposed to do. So... We've just refused to sign, period. Camp authorities decided to make an example of Jim and his fellow resistors. One evening after dinner, uh, our block was surrounded by military police. They had rifles with bayonets on them. And the soldiers said, get over there, get over there, as we came out of the mess hall after dinner. Jim and his peers were loaded onto trucks and taken to a jail in Oregon. After six days, they were moved again. This time, they went to a government camp that was run like a high-security prison. We couldn't do anything without permission or without a guard. To go to the bathroom or go to the latrine, you had to have a guard. The soldier would take you right to the door. You would go in and do whatever you had to do. And if you didn't come out in a given amount of time, what the guy would say, you guys been in there too damn long. Get out of here. Jim and the other inmates began mimicking the guards. We didn't realize this is serious. We shouldn't take it as a joke. We were still thinking, you know, this can't happen to us. But it was happening, and it would only get worse. Jim and his fellow inmates were never charged with a crime. As they and other resistors were being bounced from jail to jail, the WRA was making final plans to segregate the so-called loyals from the disloyals in all of the ten camps. Eric Muller says that in September of 1943, a massive reshuffling took place. Trains showed up at all of the other nine camps, and uh, there were these 
very, very wrenching scenes where all of the quote-unquote disloyals would show up at the train depots with their bags packed and get onto trains, waving tearfully to the people they were leaving behind, heading off to Tule Lake. Tule Lake was a whole different ballgame. It was a true concentration camp. Yukio Kawaratani and his family were transferred from Poston to Tula Lake. In fact, the whole camp was surrounded not only by a barbed wire fence, but also beyond that was about 50 yards of no man's land that nobody's going to go into. Then beyond that, you got a 10-foot-high chain-link fence with barbed wire at the top. And then you had a tower every so many feet apart with guards with their guns. And so it was a prison, you know. I remember people coming in and you wonder, you know, what kind of people they were because they had to be very uh, militant to come to Tule Lake. Hiroshi Kashiwagi and his family had been sent to Tule Lake at the start of the incarceration. They stayed on once segregation was imposed. A lot of the people who came in were Kibei. Kibei is a Japanese term for people born in the U.S., but sent to Japan temporarily for their education. They spoke Japanese, and they acted very Japanese. And they thought that we were not as like them, that we were probably more Americanized. And so there was a lot of friction at first. The suspicions went both ways. Some Kibei felt that their loyalty to America was doubted. Much of the friction died away as people got to know each other. But conflicts with camp authorities came to a head almost as soon as segregation started. It began with a labor strike. Tule Lake inmates worked on farms that raised crops for other camps. After a farm truck overturned and killed one person, the prisoners protested their poor working conditions and low pay. Rather than negotiate with the Tula Lake incarcerees, the camp director brought in strikebreakers, inmates from other camps. Unrest at Tula Lake mounted. The director of the War Relocation Authority, Dylan Meyer, paid a visit to the camp. So... Thousands of people converged on the administration building, waiting for an audience to have Dylan Meyer address the group. Barbara Takei says Dylan Meyer briefly spoke to the crowd. Then he met with a negotiating committee elected by the camp inmates. But the Tula Lake camp director, Raymond Best, still refused to respond to inmate demands. Crowds gathered to keep trucks from bringing food to strike breakers. Best called in the military, and soon the camp was under martial law. Hiroshi Kashiwagi was there. They put a curfew, and they had tanks rolling around, and tear gas bombs. They really wanted to scare us. Everything was restricted. Activities stopped. Most work was canceled. Meanwhile, the military went searching for the so-called troublemakers. And the troublemakers... Uh, were the people who were articulating the demands of the larger community. The army was going barrack to barrack in a dragnet, looking for them. From one side of the camp, the military came with a list of people. K. Morgan Yamanaka remembered one sweep across camp. And the administration came from the other side, and they picked up all the people on that list. And my brother's name and my 
name was on their list. Why, we don't know. Morgan and his family had answered no-no on the loyalty questionnaire, but they weren't exactly troublemakers. Morgan worked in the camp's fire department. He was 19 years old and paid no attention to camp politics. So it came as a surprise when he found himself crowded into a stockade with other men. Then he heard his name called. Two soldiers took me by the shoulder, took me to another room, completely dark, and they sat me down on a chair. And then a light went on from top of my head. There's nothing you can see out beyond the circle of the light. And then as the light went on, voices came on. I don't remember what kind of questions. In fact, Morgan can't remember anything about the interrogation. He had what he calls a complete blackout of memory. Morgan knows his brother was beaten up during his interrogation. Morgan's not sure if he was too. Barbara Takei says the treatment of men rounded up at Tulalik could be brutal. There were three people in particular who were singled out and taken to an administrative area and beaten, savagely beaten. One of the men was beaten with a baseball bat and hit so hard that the baseball bat broke. After several months, Morgan was released from the stockade. He was never told why he was put in there or why he was let out. Martial law at Tulalik was lifted in January of 1944. Almost immediately, the army began drafting Japanese Americans out of the 10 incarceration camps. At Tulalik, 27 young men refused to report for their physicals. They were put on trial for draft evasion. The case came before U.S. District Judge Lewis Goodman. He dismissed it. He wrote, It is shocking to the conscience that an American citizen be confined on the ground of disloyalty and then, while so under duress and restraint, be compelled to serve in the armed forces or be prosecuted for not yielding to such compulsion. This was a rare moral victory for the inmates. Of the many trials of Japanese-American draft resistors, this was the only one that went in favor of the defendants. Back in Wyoming, Mitsu Koshiyama was put on trial with 62 other draft resistors from Heart Mountain. The first day we went to trial, the judge called us Jap boys. So when we came back, a lot of the other guys in our group said, you know something, things don't look too good. Why would the judge call us Jap boys? This shows that he's very prejudiced. And they were right. In June 1944, Mitz and his co-defendants were found guilty of draft evasion. They were sentenced to three years in federal prison. Of all the incarceration camps, Hart Mountain and Poston had the two most organized draft resistance movements. Historian Eric Moller. 
And those movements really were quite articulate about their reasons for for not complying. You know, their arguments were relatively straightforward. At Heart Mountain, everybody who, who resisted the draft had answered yes to the loyalty questions. But their position was, we have not been treated as citizens. We will be willing to shoulder the great burden of military service that falls on citizens if you'll treat us like citizens. If you'll give us our rights back and our families' rights back, we will be happy to go off and serve in the army. But until then, we're not going to serve. The movement at Heart Mountain was led by the Fair Play Committee. The committee formed after the loyalty questionnaire came out. One fellow walked around camp explaining to people their constitutional rights. He called himself the Fair Play Committee of One. But the committee quickly expanded. Once the draft was announced, the organizers got busy. We were holding meetings every night in various blocks. Frank Emmy was one of the committee leaders. Uh, we used to have a full house at these uh, meetings that we held in the mess halls. Mess halls had held three, 400 people, and I guess uh, many times we had standing room only. Many people supported the Fair Play Committee, but the group also faced intense opposition, both inside and outside camp. One big opponent, the Japanese American Citizens League. They thought it was a disaster. In a sense, this was sort of their worst, the JACL's worst fear being realized, that in this moment when um, you know scrutiny was being placed on the Japanese American community, that instead of doing what the JACL wanted, which was to grab the American flag and run off onto a battlefield, that there would be young men who would resist um, and who would be understood as resisting out of disloyalty, no matter what they said, you know, no matter how much they claimed to be resisting in a patriotic way on their constitutional rights, that they would be seen as traitors. Frank Emmy says the JACL actually helped spread the idea that the draft resistors were traitors. The Pacific Citizen is the newspaper put out by the Japanese American Citizens League. It's like their house organ. And that paper, they editorialized, calling us saboteurs and uh, disloyal, seditionists, etc. They really um, vilified us. In Heart Mountain, draft resistors got the same rap from the camp newspaper, the Heart Mountain Sentinel. They call us provocateurs, uh, we're dim-witted, uh, what the Fair Play Committee was doing. After one of these editorials, Frank wrote a rebuttal letter that was so long the paper had to publish it in two issues. The fact was, Frank Emmy was never eligible for the draft. He was a father of two children. At the time, that disqualified him. But he still got punished for leading the fight against the draft at Heart Mountain. He and several Fair Play Committee leaders were sentenced to four years in federal prison for counseling others to evade the draft. Well, we felt, at least I felt so strongly about the injustice of it that uh, I just had to do something. It was just spontaneous. In 1945, the convictions of the Fair Play Committee leaders were overturned. Nearly 300 Japanese-American incarcerees were put on trial for resisting the draft. Except for the Tule Lake group, they were all convicted of the same federal crime, refusing to report for induction. Their sentences varied widely. In Arizona, the post and draft resistors were given a one-penny fine. 
In Idaho, the Minidoka resistors were sentenced to more than three years in federal prison. Two years after the war, President Harry S. Truman pardoned all the Japanese-American draft resistors, but they weren't necessarily freed from the judgment of their own community. For Japanese-Americans who opposed the draft or who protested in camp, their actions were often seen as a badge of dishonor. This was especially true for people held at Tula Lake. I don't know, there was a great stigma of being in Tula Lake. Hiroshi Kashiwagi. You don't dare say that you were in Tula Lake because then right away, you know, they know that, ah, you were there and you were disloyal and you were a no-no and so forth. Barbara Takei says that the real story of Tula Lake is the story of Japanese-Americans protesting the injustice of wartime incarceration. The tragedy, she says, is that this history has been hidden and distorted. For most of the past 70 years, the stories of the people who protested have been treated like our dirty linen. Our community has not embraced the stories of protest and instead, the people who protested have been marginalized. The people who protested uh, were not pro-Japan fanatics. They were not disloyal. They were people who did a very American thing, which was to protest injustice. And they were our early civil rights heroes. As World War II began to end, it was clear that all 10 incarceration camps would close. Many inmates had already left camp for school and jobs out east or in the Midwest, or to go to war. But what would happen to all the people left behind? Having lost their homes, their jobs, their businesses, where exactly should they go? For some people, resettling after camp would prove even harder than being in camp. We had no place to stay. And so my father got an army squad tent and he put it up in the backyard of our former landlord, right across the street from where we used to live. Boy, I'm telling you, uh, we lived in that tent. I don't know how we survived. That's in the next chapter of Order 9066. I'm Saab Shimono. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Murayama, and Emerald O'Brien. Mixing by Johnny Vince Evans. This podcast is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanefuji, and Valeska Hilpig. Special thanks to Denjo, the Japanese-American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese-Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Denjo. Please help us spread the word about this series. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. 
You can see photos from the incarceration period and find links to additional resources at our website, apmreports.org. And you can also find a link to the Smithsonian Online Exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Special thanks to the Gopher Broke National Education Center for use of their oral history archive. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Tarasaki Family Foundation, the Henry R. Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shalop. <laughs>